0: Hello and welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode three for September 2022. So hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, Laura Wilson gets back under the saddle and Lucy Proctor tells us of the circle of stud life seasons.
1: And Toots Bartlett says the grass actually is greener on the other side of the border. Tips for foraging walnuts. Julie Hatcher of the Dorset Wildlife Trust talks about the fortunes of the furrowed and the edible crabs of Dorset's coast. Jane Adams on the loss of an incredible 97% of our
0: grassland since the 1930s. And farmer Andrew Livingston wants more woolly thinking. And we hear from you in our Letters to the Editor feature.
1: Equestrian. Getting back under the saddle by Laura Wilson, Mactimony Animal Chiropractor. My event horse Cookie had a guarded prognosis from the vets. After a diagnosis of a hind suspensory tear and a sacroiliac strain coupled with less than ideal confirmation, they said he was very unlikely to return to eventing. I sought help and watched the incredible transformation that my McTimony therapist, Cassia Lyons, achieved with him. At the time, I was an accountant, but was inspired to retrain with the McTimony Animal Association in 2014. Cookie was having treatments every six weeks from Casia, and then, when I qualified, I took over. Nine years later, he is still eventing. He's now 15, and we have had no recurrence of either issue. He had everything against him, and I'm certain his regular mactimony treatments are the reason he's still sound and well. Mactimony is a form of chiropractic manipulation, which is used to treat pain and dysfunction of the musculoskeletal system. The technique is non-invasive and gentle, and is readily accepted by animals. It predominantly focuses on optimizing alignment of the spine and pelvis in order to restore correct function of the skeletal system, the nervous system, and the surrounding soft tissue, resolving dysfunction and balancing the animal's musculoskeletal system, restoring health and movement, soundness and performance. I also incorporate various soft tissue techniques into my treatments, including myofascial release, craniosacral work, and massage. I spend the majority of my time treating a huge variety of horses and ponies from all disciplines, eventers, show jumpers, racehorses, and ex-racehorses, riding and pony club horses, hacks, dressage, endurance, show, and some retired horses too. I also work with vets on rehabilitation plans after injuries or operations, helping the four-legged patients to achieve a return to fitness. Dressage Warm Blood's owner, Liz Trowbridge, called me to help with Lance's rehab after a kissing spine operation a few years ago. It has been challenging at times, but it's so very rewarding to follow his return to work, watching him build muscle in the correct places and keeping on top of the inevitable little niggles that have presented themselves along the way. Liz says... I needed someone who understands the physical demands and mechanics of an advanced competition horse, while always having the horse's best interests as a priority. Laura is quiet with the horses, but effective, completely reliable, and I happily recommend her to everyone. One of my most emotional cases was a couple of years ago, when a vet called me to visit a rescued Romanian street dog called Toto, who had a spinal nerve impingement. He needed a lot of expensive diagnostics and the vets suspected a possible operation which, sadly, the owners simply couldn't afford. Toto had been really struggling for weeks and I was his last chance before the unthinkable decision had to be made. He was also a therapy dog for the owner's young daughter so emotions were high and the pressure was on. When I arrived, I could see that Toto was struggling to walk He was very wobbly, and his hind legs kept giving way underneath him, so he dragged them along behind. If I hadn't already had veterinary permission to treat Toto, I would have definitely walked away once I saw him. He needed a multitude of adjustments from head to tail along his spine, and his pelvis was extremely rotated and tilted. I straightened him up and went away, telling the owners to rest him and hope for the best. The very next day I had an excited message from Toto's owner saying that he'd made a full recovery and was now completely fine. Toto had been fully restored to his former self after just one treatment and after an initial follow-up I haven't needed to see him again. I cannot explain how gratifying it was to treat this dog and give him back the quality of life that the owner thought was lost forever. Toto's owner Claire Job says... We honestly cannot thank Laura enough for what she's done for our boy. She's amazing. I just wish I'd called her sooner. I always say that I have the best job in the world. It's absolutely true. Every single day is different. I'm usually out in the open air and meeting people who care deeply about their animals. I'm doing a job I love, working with animals and relieving their discomfort. It's hugely fulfilling. And you can contact Laura, if you want, on laura at laurawilsonmactim.co.uk. That's laura at laurawilsonmactim.co.uk. The Circle of Stud Life Seasons by Lucy Proctor
0: August has disappeared in a swelter of dust, heat and flies. With more than 40 mares and young stock on site, the business of protecting them all with fly rugs mesh rugs designed to help reduce the irritation of flies on horses living in fields during the day would be impracticable and in the extreme temperatures we had in august even a light mesh fly rug would have made them overly hot however horses do help themselves when sharing a field with others they can be seen standing nose to tail swatting flies off each other's heads and bodies with their tails we deliberately leave their tails long during the summer months to assist this this summer, three of our mares developed a novel fly swat system, with all three of them standing nose to tail in a triangle, so that each could benefit equally from their constantly swishing tails. The foals tended to conserve their energy during the heat of the day, spending most of their time sleeping or drinking milk from their dams. As soon as it became cool in the evening, however, it was time to play. The foals would start galloping around, bucking and rearing for the sheer fun of it, which was lovely to watch. At the end of August, we started weaning the first foals, by now nearly six months old. Readers may remember from last year that we wean in groups, removing two mares at a time from a field, leaving other mares to help steady the dynamics of those left behind. The foals usually settle very quickly with their friends, and as they have already been supplementing their milk with increasing amounts of grass and hard feed in the creep feeder, it's not too much of a shock to their systems. It was full circle for our foster mare, Zita, who took on our orphaned foal at the start of the season. Having the oldest foal at foot, she was one of the first to be brought out of the field, and she will soon return to her owners. She is now back in foal herself, and we look forward to seeing photos of her new foal next spring. We kept the mares on just a handful of nuts and poor grazing for the first couple of weeks after weaning to help dry up their milk supply. It's important to keep a close eye on their bags, the usual term for a mare's udder. If a mare continues to produce large quantities of milk without a foal to drink it, there's a danger of her developing mastitis, which, as many human mums can vouch, can be extremely painful and difficult to treat. Once a mare's bags have almost dried up, we move her to slightly better grazing and gradually increase her feed until we're happy that she is no longer producing milk. This is the time of year when the sales companies and bloodstock agents come to visit us to look at this year's crop of foals. Tattersalls, whose main National Hunt sales arm is based at Fairy House in Ireland, and whose National Hunt foal sale is in November, and Goss UK based in Doncaster, whose National Hunt foal sale is in January, both visited this month to see which foals might be suitable. Generally speaking, only foals born earlier in the year will be ready to sell in November. We have identified three foals that might make the trip to Ireland, and we will bring them into the stables and start their prep work in September. The two-year-olds that we were working with in July were lightly backed and ridden away in early August by our son Freddie before being turned back out into the field 24-7 to eat, sleep and play, To be youngsters together until next spring, when they will be re-backed and start working again. We got the youngsters backed just in time before Freddie went back out to the States to race-ride for one of the leading jump trainers based in Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, our daughter Alice, who works for trainer Kieran Burke near Dorchester, had her first ride under rules at Windsor. Her second-place finish meant happy owners and trainer, and the prospect of further rides under rules for her. With a distinct hint of the arrival of autumn in the air and a noticeable shortening of the days, all efforts on the stud in the coming weeks will be focused on having everything ready for when winter turns and stock needs to start coming in again at night. I know we're all
1: just getting over the recent heatwave, but it'll be winter before we know it. The grass actually is greener on the other side of the border, by Toots Bartlett. Another boiling hot month in August, the ground was still like concrete and all that was left of the grass had officially gone. We've been feeding hay in the fields all summer. It's been a slightly quieter month on the eventing side. Khoi Taran jumped double clear round West Wilt's novice and I hope to take him to Osberton to the six-year championships at the end of the year. My top horse, CY, won his first outing at British Dressage and had his first event in nearly a year at Aston La Walls. He and I were very overexcited, as he demonstrated down the centre line and subsequently bounced his way round all three phases. He's such a thrilling horse to ride, if a little unconventional. He has developed his own fan club, whose members adore his signature helicopter tail. In search of better ground, we decided to make the long journey to Scotland, and spent the bank holiday at the incredibly beautiful Blair Castle. We planned the 14-hour drive carefully, plotting a route with service stations where the lorry could stop so we could check the horses. Every stop we made sure their temperature felt good, offered them water, and allowed them the chance to get their heads down to prevent the risk of them getting travel sick. Halfway through the journey, we got both horses off and allowed them to have a walk and a graze in a safe location. To encourage them to drink, we placed apples in their water. They both travelled really well and arrived looking in great shape. We made sure we took their temperatures on arrival and took them for a long walk and graze before allowing them to rest in their stables. We subsequently had a week of thrills and spills. Both horses are new to me this year and it was a big ask for them in their respective classes. You may remember that Ecuador M.W. was my FedEx parcel in the spring when he arrived from New Zealand. He was in the CCI 3 Star L. For where we are in our training, I was pleased with a good dress art. We then had a fabulous round cross-country until we unfortunately parted company in the second water. There were massive crowds, which he will never have seen in New Zealand, and he was a little distracted. I also didn't put his ears on as it was so hot to my regret now, and definitely a lesson learned. However, we're both fine, and I'm looking forward to getting him out eventing soon. Cor-i-Teran is the horse I spontaneously bought from a Facebook message without actually having seen him, and he was in his first international FEI event. After a brilliant dressage of 29.9, he was lying third in a field of 100. The large crowds distracted him for the beginning of his show-jumping round, leading to the disappointing and uncharacteristic dropping of some poles. But he settled and finished his round really well. Having learned lots in the show-jumping, he came out and jumped a beautiful, clear cross-country inside the time. Blair was a magnificent event, beautifully organised, incredible views and a great atmosphere. We also attended a drinks party in the castle and a Cayley. It has definitely become one of our favourite events and we'll be adding it to the yearly schedule despite the journey. With the ground still so firm and the end of the event season coming ever closer, we're down to three final events for 2022. I'm really looking forward to training hard and going out to try and smash the last month of the season. I've already begun thinking about next year, and I feel I might take a different route next year due to the increasing heat and its natural consequences of harder ground. I think I'll try to get the internationals done in the first few months. Potentially, I could then give the horses a two-week holiday midsummer and bring them back out in the later part of the year. That way, I could prevent them running so much on such hard ground. Also, most of the overseas events are becoming dressage and show-jumping on an artificial surface."
0: Wildlife. Looking sweet in the meadow and on the roadside too. This year has been a test of water management for both us humans and the natural world, with droughts seen across much of the country and record temperatures to boot. Indeed, many of our trees have decided to shed brown leaves as early as mid-August, giving some areas a very autumnal look and feel already. I, along with you I am sure, am hoping that the coming weeks and months give our surroundings a chance to recover from this summer with some much needed rainfall. I have also noticed that many of our hedgerow harvests seem unaffected by the conditions, with a bumper year for blackberries and also many nut trees looking extremely bountiful. One such tree is the walnut, a prized tree in the foragers' inventory. While many people are surprised to hear that we can go foraging for walnuts in the UK, the walnut tree has been growing here since Roman times and can be found in many parks and larger gardens, as well as on roadsides. Indeed, it's one of the things I will often spot from my car on journeys all around the Blackmore Vale and surrounding area. As with most nut trees, the trick is getting to the ripe nuts before the squirrels, who are particularly adept at outwitting us human collectors when it comes to timing our harvests. Ideally, you'll wait until the shell has started peeking through the green husks, which are in clusters of two to five. They are green and oval in shape, looking a little like a lime from a distance, and inside is the wrinkled seed. As the nut ripens, the shell forms and hardens around it, Once collected and dried out, it can be stored for up to a year. In the world of foraging, nuts hold a special place for me, alongside mushrooms, as they can form the centrepiece of a meal and offer a huge amount of protein and other nutrients. As such, it should come as little surprise when I say that the walnut tree is by far my favourite tree to find on the landscape. The next plant I wish to share this month is meadowsweet, a truly abundant wild herb that likes a damper environment. Hopefully the autumn will deliver one. This sweetly-scented plant was famous both as a strewing herb scattered on the floor for its scent and as a flavouring from mead. Today I use it to infuse many things, from vinegars to custards. Last September I undertook a challenge where I only consumed food I could procure myself, with not a single thing bought from a shop and I made meadow sweet custard by infusing my goat's milk with the flowers from this plant, which delivered an almond flavour with hints of vanilla. All parts of the plant are edible, and can be added to soups or sauces, giving a deliciously sweet aromatic flavour to sweet dishes such as stewed fruits. The bitter roots, along with the leaves and flowers, have been used dried as a tea, Traditionally found in damper meadows, meadowsweet grows prolifically in the Blackmore Vale, along roadside ditches which have been created and maintained to irrigate agricultural land. It's both abundant and easy to find and identify. Finally this month, I would like to draw your attention to the possibility of finding other fruits we usually associate with cultivated harvesting. While I will spotlight no one in particular, I think it's easy for us to forget that while strawberries and raspberries proliferate in wild spaces all around us, along with wild blueberries and currants. As I sit to write this article, I can see a heaving bowl of pears collected from a wild pear tree growing on an almost unused roadside connecting two small hamlets. The differences between the pears I have and the ones in the shops? Well, apart from the fact mine tastes better and were free, not
1: much at all really. Ploughing a new furrow by Dorset Wildlife Trust's Marine Awareness Officer, Julie Hatcher. The wildlife-rich shallows and seashore of Kimmeridge Bay were designated as a protected area under UK law in 2019 and form part of the Purbeck Coast Marine Conservation Zone, or the MCZ. The intertidal zone, that's the region between the high tide mark and the low tide mark in Kimmeridge Bay, is the only stretch with this level of protection along the open Dorset coast, and an important part of our work at the Wild Seas Centre is to record and monitor the marine life along this coastline. One such survey focuses on the furrowed crab, Xantho hydrophilus, a native to the southwest coast but a recent arrival in Dorset. Further west, this crab has undergone a population explosion in recent decades, raising concerns about its impact on other long-term residents. First sighted on the seashore at Kimmeridge in 2019, the survey records the population size and any concurrent changes to other crab species on the seashore, including the edible crab Cancerpagoras, of which there is an abundance of juveniles. Edible crabs move to progressively deeper water as they grow, so the ones found intertidally are the small, immature youngsters. A team of trained volunteers records the number, size and sex of crabs, along with the habitat and associated animals. While the population of furrowed crabs is still at a low level, something interesting has been discovered about the edible crabs. Out of the 125 recorded, only four were females. Crab experts appear to have no explanation for this gender discrepancy and further research is needed to solve the mystery. Climate change is known to be altering the distribution and survivability of many wildlife species and it's thought that the furrowed crab may be one of these, hence its recent colonisation in Dorset. The effects of shifting distributions and the fortunes of both winners and losers in these changing times are unforeseeable. So monitoring changes and their impacts is vital to our understanding of how we can help. Of course, the most urgent need is to slow the global temperature increase, which will at least give species more time to adapt. Meanwhile, our volunteers will continue to monitor this most difficult of ecosystems and share our understanding far and wide.
0: Devil's Bit Scabious by Jane Adams. About 10 years ago, I decided to grow a mini wildflower meadow on what was a rather forlorn patch of grass. It was lumpy and weedy, and I could tell it really didn't want to be a lawn. Actually, allowing it to grow seemed an obvious win – I wouldn't have to mow it and pollinators like bees and butterflies would benefit from any extra flowers. From what I'd read, insects needed all the help they could get. But I swiftly found out that the proper wildflower meadows are deceptively hard to grow. In that first year, I planted chamomile, napweed, orange hawkbit, birdsfoot trefoil, yellow rattle, and devil's bit scabious plug plants to boost the diversity of plant life. My old lawn buzzed and crawled with insect life, and I felt pretty smug. The following year, hardly anything grew except the devil's bit scabious. I now know what I did wrong. I didn't research what flowers would and should grow in my sandy dorset patch, I hadn't considered the rich mosaic of interconnected plants and fungi that were needed to make a lowland meadow, even one as small as mine. In short, I thought copying nature would be simple, and it wasn't. In the UK we've lost a staggering 97% of our species-rich grassland since the 1930s. That's equivalent to 7.5 million acres, and quite a few of those acres would have been endorsed. Over the years meadows were mismanaged, undervalued and unprotected, What took hundreds, even thousands of years to grow disappeared almost overnight. But we do still have fragments of flower-rich meadows in our countryside. We just need to join them up so that wildlife can flow from one to another. Which is why conservationists are keen for us to create green corridors for wildlife and plants by growing wildflowers in our garden. Just imagine if we could sow a giant living patchwork of native flowers right across Dorset In the meantime, the devil's bit scabious and the bees that hang from their button blooms are a joy to watch on my old lawn. And they are a reminder that we can all do our bit to help wildlife during this ecological
1: crisis. Farming. We need more woolly thinking by Andrew Livingston. Farm life is built around regular tasks, whether they're daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal or annual. In the world of sheep farming, there's one summer task that is seen as a cost and a hindrance, but which, once upon a time, provided the main income from the flock – shearing. Shearing sheep is vital to ensure the welfare of the animal. Removing their thick winter coats keeps them cool and reduces the risk of parasites and disease that can fester on faeces left on their coats. Wool became an important commodity once farmers realised that the material could be spun to make clothes. Shearing is believed to have started around 3,500 BC and is mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament. For instance, Genesis 31.19, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. In 1276, Florentine merchants agreed to buy 62 sacks of wool for 697.5 marks from the Cistercian monks at Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire, on condition it came without clack, lock, cot, and breech wool, or black, grey, or inferior fleece, and without pelt wool. Clacked wool had the marks cut off, to avoid paying duties, as it weighed less. Duties were levied on wool, including the coloured marks. Lock was probably daggy wool wool from the sheep's rear end with poo on it, cot was coated or tangled, and breech the low-quality stuff from the haunches. That black or grey were undesirable colours probably implies this was destined to be dyed. And finally, pelt wool is the wool from dead sheep, which the unscrupulous might mix in to make up the weight. The monks were contracted to sort and weigh the wool and deliver, at Clifton, 14 to 17 sacks a year for the Florence trade. Each sack was 26 stones, that's 364 pounds of wool. The Flemish wool industry had such an appetite for English wool that Richard I's ransom was raised by confiscating the wool clip of the Cistercian monks. Henry VIII wasn't the first king to rob the monks. John Barton, a 15th century wool merchant of home by Newark, Nottinghamshire, had a stained glass window placed in his parish church, which says, I thank God, and ever shall, it is the sheep hath paid for all. In the 19th century, man-made fibres could be easily mass-produced and became a cheaper alternative to wool. They had the additional benefit of being more durable, easier to maintain, and more readily available. The rapid expansion in production and use of man-made fibres saw an equal and opposite reaction in the plummeting profits in the wool trade. The price of wool is now so low that it no longer even covers the cost of shearing, let alone making an income for the farmer. Shearers typically charge one pound fifty per sheep, with their 2 kilos of wool, on average, selling for around 75 pence. So what's the answer? At the moment, the price of wool is actually deemed at a high, as the price of wool is inextricably linked with the price of crude oil, which is required in the production of man-made fibres. If the cost of those man-made fibres goes up, so do the alternative choices. The British Wool Board, whose job it is to effectively market wool so that farmers can get a decent return, needs to start working harder for sheep farmers. Currently, British Wool sells wool for its members, but will only handle pure breeds fleeces. Some farmers have been proactive in treating and selling their wool. Rampersham Hill Farm in Hook, where I grew up, began treating and spinning their wool to sell themselves. Today they buy fleeces from other Dorset shepherds to meet their orders. Sheep's wool is also among the top insulating materials for the construction trade in terms of sustainability. Sheep are shorn every year, some twice, and the wool just keeps growing back. As a raw material, wool is abundant, continuously renewable, and locally produced in Britain. It lasts for decades, and at the end of its life can simply be composted, unlike oil-based insulation. To manufacture plastic insulation in the first place, you need oil, chemicals, and lots of energy. Another innovative use of sheep's fleeces in recent years is as eco-friendly thermal insulating packaging. Wool Cool makes this by combining two fleeces on the inside of a box to keep produce cool for up to 72 hours. The fleeces can then be recycled for various roles, such as food for roses and protecting plants and flowers from frost. Unfortunately, Not all farmers have the time or resources to treat their fleeces to obtain optimum profitability. A thousand years later, we still pay less for daggy wool. Wool is currently a wasted resource. Somewhere out there, there's an idea that will save the wool industry and make someone a lot of money. I've got my own thinking cap on for that big idea. Woolen thinking caps, maybe?
0: Letters to the editor. Is there any help on the horizon to mitigate the energy bills? How do we survive? I literally don't know. My contract just came to an end and my renewal offer to fix a rate for the next 12 months is over £700 a month. It is ridiculous. I'm struggling to understand that it's actually real and not an admin error. I'm a single parent to two. I work full-time, I'm not on any benefits, my teenagers have part-time jobs. We do okay, but how am I supposed to just whisk up an extra £500 a month? I keep searching and hoping, but there seems to be no answers or help from any quarter. The government are silent, silent, during a national crisis that is genuinely more frightening than any I can personally remember. And if one more person tells me to get thicker curtains, or to turn off appliances I'm not using, there may be bloodshed. That's from John Farrer of Sherborne. Dr Charles Matthews writes, I always enjoy Simon Hoare's contributions to the BV. I admit I'm an undecided voter, but have always considered North Dorset lucky in their representative, and value his opinion and thoughts. But I can't help but notice that he's been missing in action a few times in the last few issues. Understandable occasionally, yet I've observed he does fail to appear in a certain fortnightly printed title under a similar name. Can it be that he values the readers of that paper more? They will inevitably be the older demographic, and therefore we all know that they are the most likely to vote. The BV is by far the superior publication in terms of reporting and content. And when I stopped to speak to you at the GNS show, you did an excellent job on the show magazine, by the way. I saw the stats board in your marquee, so I know the BV circulation to be considerable. You only need to follow your social media to see your instant connection with your readers. And yet Mr Hoare doesn't appear to value the BV enough to commit to a regular contribution. Or perhaps it's your, what I presume to be, naturally younger, more digitally conversant readership, who we all know are less likely to make time to vote, especially when we're all so disenchanted and disenfranchised with politicians that he feels no need to engage with. Interesting, and possibly rather foolish.
1: This letter comes from Shona B near Shaftesbury. What is happening with our zombie government? We've had weeks of this beauty pageant of two candidates. Our alleged caretaker PM is off on holiday again. Meanwhile, inflation is at the highest rate for 40 years. Wages are so universally low, they are unlivable. And we face a winter of increasing strikes. Those old enough will remember how much fun that wasn't in the 70s. Our energy bills are so eye-watering, it's impossible to grasp the reality of them. Local businesses are already closing down. The domino effect has begun. Many, many more are holding on by their fingertips. But there's no way they'll stay afloat when their current contracts run out. The times are not ordinary. We need an extraordinary reaction to them. Why was our government allowed to simply wash its hands of the whole energy crisis and say... Not my job, love. Wait for the next guy. Why is the country looking to a powerless Martin Lewis for guidance? I am so angry at them all. That letter by Shonaby was written before Liz Truss was chosen to be our new Prime Minister.
0: Thank you for your coverage of Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak visiting Dorset. It was an interesting and balanced article, contrary to what one person amusingly seemed to think on Facebook – before admitting they'd not actually read the article in question, and it should have allowed us to gain a small insight into their responses to a few pertinent rural issues. Sadly, by following their summer campaigns more, I see their responses were simply their cookie-cutter, right, we're in the country, so we need to talk about how great farmers are, responses. Genuine insight into what our next Prime Minister may do for deprived rural areas and deep-seated planning issues feel further off than ever.
1: Tom Brady, Verwood. The next letter is from Dr Catherine Going. What a travesty that a residential home is closing in Shaftesbury due to the inability to fill beds and thus keeping finances viable. Working in the NHS and trying to admit very ill people to overcrowded hospitals, we're informed time and again that there are no beds because there are no available placements to discharge people to. There have been eight empty rooms at Pepperell House. How can this be? Why have these rooms not been filled? Why is there not a long waiting list as there is in other care establishments? Of course, I don't know the answers to these questions, But would it not be worth a public inquiry to see if this hugely valuable resource could not be kept open? I imagine it's been a difficult task for the trustees to negotiate the pandemic, but there are other willing volunteers who'd step immediately into the trustee roles that the present trustees are vacating. Is it not worth having another try to keep Pepperell open? Shaftesbury has an ageing and ever-expanding population. Residential settings for our elderly, soon to include all of us, and especially affordable ones, are like gold dust. They should not need to be closed down. They need to have priority status. And the above does not begin to address the devastation to residents and families who are losing their homes at such short notice. No doubt it will be nigh on impossible to find other suitable accommodation, let alone a new home home which is what Pepperell most certainly is for its very elderly residents, a safe home and an established community. And Charlotte L. in Blandford writes, may I thank you for your frank honesty in your editor's letter this month? I too am an overweight, middle-aged mum, and there are a lot of us out there, and your letter really struck a chord. Why was I sitting at home waiting for the right body before I braved the outside world in some sportswear? I'm not as brave as you. Contact sport is definitely not my thing. But I did used to love cycling. So I pulled the bike out of the shed and hit the road. Lycra clad, wobbly thighs and all. And it was brilliant. I'm so angry at myself for forgetting how much I loved it. Yes, OK, I couldn't walk for two days afterwards, but I was soon back on it again, this time with my teenage daughter alongside me. It's become a regular evening mum and daughter activity, just for an hour, and we're both loving it. My aching thighs thank you. I should like to express many
0: grateful thanks to Laura and Ian of Swallowcliff, who came to my aid after a nasty fall outside Tesco's in Shaftesbury on Saturday, August the 12th. They finished my shopping and escorted me home. I'm glad to say that such great kindness exists. Ever grateful, M. Forster, Shaftesbury. That's all for the BV Magazine podcast for September. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Until October, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And goodbye for
1: this month from me, Jenny Devitt.